and delivers a sharp rebuke. Let me, let me jump in. This morning I want to talk about how evil's, evil's worst nightmare, evil's worst nightmare in all of its forms is a humble and spirit-filled missionary. Technically, evil's worst nightmare is God <laughs> in his glory and majesty and power. But how that nightmare manifests in the world in direct opposition to evil is through a humble and spirit-filled missionary. The missionary life does not require a model or a manual, but humility and the spirit to guide us in wisdom and, and to distill through us real authority and power. This is the story of the rise of Paul and the fall of Elemas. You could say the exalting of the humble and the humbling of the self-exalted happens in this text. And I think verse 9, just like what JP was getting at, I think verse 9 is a hinge, a turning point, both in this passage but also in the book of Acts, uh, 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 one of the turning points or hinges in the book of Acts as a whole. You see, Saul was a rage-filled, power-hungry, control-obsessed murderer and prosecutor of churches and the people of God. Saul was proud. Saul was uh, uh, taken by pride, by his own power, his own control of his own environment. You could say in his own words, in his own world, words, that Saul was a child of the devil, that Saul was an enemy of everything that is right, that Saul was full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, that Saul would never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. And so the hand of the Lord was against Saul. And Saul was blinded for a time. Wasn't he? And in that blindness, Saul groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Did he not? And in that space, the grace of Jesus was right there waiting for him, right there to restore him, to redeem him, to pick him up, to train him, to commission him, to help him, to guide him. And now the life of Saul is gone. The old is gone and the new has come. Saul is now a new creation. In his own words, later in his life, he is a new creation. And eventually that new life comes with a new name. And that new name that he takes for himself, that new name Paul, is a transition from the, the Hebraic, the Jewish Saul, to a Greek name Paul. And that name literally means small or humble. Paul. Small or humble. The larger than life Saul becomes the small and humble Paul. The proud Saul becomes the humble Paul. And Jesus does not rename Paul. I even got that conflated earlier this week. We were doing a Bible study with the staff team on this text. A few people were in there. And I was like, yeah, when did Jesus rename Saul again? Wasn't that back in Acts 8? We looked and went, look, that didn't happen. That's not actually a thing. That's Peter. That just like it literally doesn't happen here. I could have swore Peter just changed or Jesus changed his name. Saul actually takes for himself this new name, Paul. Changes, changes his own name, perhaps in, in, in uh, uh, you know, discernment with the community or of his own volition. 
And Saul the Benjamite, Saul the, the one who's proud in his heritage, the one who's, who's proud of his legacy, who, who comes from that tribe, who has a status in that tribe, and whose name means everything to that identity, he chooses to go by a Greek name as he ventures off in the mission of God to a Gentile land. He chooses to take a name which would actually have more meaning in the mission that he's been called to. And even the choice of his name exemplifies the meaning of the name itself. That, that the humble one, the small one, the one with humility. Pr pride, takes, takes, uh, pride claims all kinds of rights. Pride is entitled to all kinds of rights. Pride is entitlement to all things, everything, whatever somebody wants. But humility actually relinquishes rights, is entitled to nothing. And Paul, even in the changing of his name, admits that even his own name is not his right. He is not even entitled to his own name. And embraces this new name, Paul, the humble one. And there's this intentional tension and paradox between these two prominent characters, Paul and Elimus. Elimus is right now in this text, Elimus is the same as who Paul was. And he is the opposite of who Paul is now. Elimus is an oxymoron. Do you guys know, you, like English majors, or if you remember, what is that, middle school? Middle school is probably where we did oxymoron. Oxymoron is like two words put together that are opposites, right? Unless that's wrong, I'm not an English major. I think that's what it is. Elimus is an oxymoron. A Jewish sorcerer. When sorcery is condemned for the Jews. Sorcery is not allowed for the Jews. But he is a Jewish sorcerer. A false prophet. A prophet who speaks on behalf of God and yet all, he, all of his prophetic utterance is false. And he is a Bar Yeshua, a son of the Savior. He is a son of the Savior. A Savior he does not yet know. A Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet, and a son of the Savior. And he actively opposes the truth and tried to persuade the proconsul away from the faith. What, and what I am guessing, same, same story that we see in Jerusalem, in the early church, same story that we see in the life of Jesus in order to protect and control the, his own power, his own reputation, his own placement in that island, that society, right next to that Roman power. He sees this as a direct threat on his power, his influence, his position. And he begins to actively oppose, even though he's the one sent from the proconsul to go send for a hearing from these people. And in the midst of that, actively opposing that hearing. How can there be those in the household of God who become barriers to the flourishing of their own people in God? How can there be those who traffic in spirituality while seeking to block the work of the Spirit? We still live in a world of oxymoron leaders, don't we? It's, it's not just an ancient Near East thing, right? It's still possible. It's still possible today, is it not? And, and maybe sometimes we can become oxymoron leaders if we're so brave to look at ourselves. Who engage in Christian sorcery. Who evoke our, who, who try to strive for our own 
power, our own authority, not the power of God, not the authority of God, not submitting to that, but grabbing for our own power, our own authority, and then trying to exemplify that to people in a masquerade, performative righteousness. Christian sorcerers. We're in an age filled with oxymoron leaders. Abusive elders. It's an oxymoron. Filthy rich pastors. Ethnocentric missionaries. Entitled deacons. And I re-ask the question, how can there be those in the household of God who become barriers to the flourishing of their own people in God? How can there be those who traffic in spirituality while seeking to block the work of the Spirit? It's possible... Then, now, and in the future, it's possibly because of our subtle inner entanglement between pride and humility. The vacillating of the human heart between pride and humility. And that's the contrast of these two characters. Pride focuses on the self. It serves the self. It's for the self. It exalts the self. It does not exalt God. It is not for God. It is for the self, saturated by the self. And it plays itself out, that pride, in obsession with power over and control of our own lives, and our own environments. This is Alimus. Power and control. Power and control, power and control. And yet humility, instead of focusing on the self, exalting the self, humility actually leaves no room for the self. Humility is not self-hatred or self-deprivation. That's actually pride. It's still actually focusing on the self. Humility simply is self-forgetful. It leaves no room in life for the consideration of the self. It is totally caught up in the love of God and the love of the other. In the full fulfillment of the law and the prophets, to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. To be totally caught up with that, totally saturated with that, completely trying to pursue that. And instead of... Power and control coming out of uh, of a life of someone who has internal pride. The outpouring of someone who's caught up in humility is surrender and submission. That all the power I have over myself, I use to surrender all of what I have to Jesus. And all the control I have over who I am, I actually use to submit myself completely to his leadership and reign and majesty in my life and in the world around me. Surrender and submission. But Paul doesn't, if you'd read this text, if you read this text, if you read that interaction, Paul doesn't look super humble. His name says humble, but he doesn't look very humble. He looks a little arrogant. He looks a little, a little prideful. He, he, he looks a little testy. He looks a little testy. Maybe, maybe for our eyes, from our vantage point. But I think he's, it's actually humble, very humble when you look close because he simply delivers all that he knows from his lived experience with the hope for repentance and restoration. Alimus, when I was like you, when I was in your space, I, I think it's empathy. Paul's almost like, oh, I remember those days. I remember those days. And the best thing that ever happened was when the Lord confronted me to my face and made me blind. It was the best day of my life. The best day of my life. And so, I, uh, I don't really know else to, what to do here. That's all I know. And man, I, I crave your, your repentance. And I crave for you to be restored. So I guess I have to blind you. 
I guess I have to confront you to your face. And I guess I have to speak some harsh words to you. And then I guess I got to call down the blindness of God on your life. That's when we're going to talk a little bit about how that's actually a difference between pride and humility, that kind of approach. I read this week, um, Jeremy uh, uh, put me onto this lady, Jackie Pollinger, when we were studying this text. And, I, and so I went and I read Chasing the Dragon, which is a bit of a story about her life and ministry. In 1966, this woman, Jackie Pullinger, uh, uh, had a dream, had a dream about, about uh, uh, giving her life to ministry in Hong Kong as a missionary. And so she, she hopped on a boat uh, by, by recommendation from a leader in her life. She hopped on a boat in 1966 to head over to, to Hong Kong. And when she uh, got there, there was this little section of Hong Kong that way back in like the late, late, late 1800s, when the you know, the control of uh, China was being transitioned from British rule to Chinese rule. There was this little section of Hong Kong that went unclaimed. There's this little section of like northeast Hong Kong that was like this, that, that had these like clear boundaries that was not under Chinese rule and it was not under British rule. And it had actually no like governing body at all. And some of the effects of that is there was like no utilities, no electric service, no sewer service, anything like that. And most, most importantly, there was no police. It was a lawless land, a lawless wasteland. And what happened was these triad gangs came in and took over this place, took over governance of this place. And it became this place where any criminals would just run to because there was no arresting taking place in that, in that section. And little Jackie Pullinger, in her 20s, goes straight to that place. And the triad gangs are like controlling everything, and they're just, it, it became like the, the opiate uh, center of the world, like, like drug center of the world, pumping out like so much addiction there, and then pumping drugs out all over the world. And she was right there in the middle of it. And she was just like, and reading her talking about and watching a few videos, watching her talking about it, it's like weird. She was like, yeah, it was pretty cool. Like, I mean, can you imagine living? It sounds post-apocalyptic to me. And she's like, yeah, it was pretty cool. Like there was just like, you know, the sewer, the sewer, sewer lines like just running down the street. That was like not great. But man, it's so fun, like really cool people. And it was like, like everything was, everything, every day was new. And it was really interesting. <laughs> she's like, really... And uh, uh, they, she, at first, for the first few years, she gained all this favor and reputation with people because of the way that she loved people, the way that she loved addicts, the way that she loved gang members, the way that she loved people who were in power and authority. It didn't really matter. She just like this presence that loved people, prayed for people, was always like concerned with people. She gained this kind of favor and reputation with people. But she, in her own words, she was she was like she wasn't seeing a lot of transformation. She wasn't seeing like people give their life to Jesus and have this like total life change. And she was in this prayer meeting with this uh, Chinese pastor. And in this, this prayer meeting, she started speaking in tongues. Uh, she kind of like received that gift and grew in that gift in this meeting with uh, uh, praying in tongues with this, pa this Chinese pastor. And then she went from that prayer meeting and she started like just in her min ministry life, she just started praying in tongues. Like with people or just like walking on the street or just, you know, just a long life. She would just occasionally pray in tongues. And people would just people would just be like she just started seeing mass healing in the space of praying in tongues. And the way that she put it was when I would pray, I would almost make my own plans and I would ask God to bless my plans. But when I would pray pray in tongues, I would enter into what God is doing in the world. 
and just depend on what and, and learn and experience and see what he is doing in the world and just try to come alongside it in some way. And all these people, all these people just started getting healed. All these people just started surrendering their lives to Jesus. All these people who were like opiate addicts, and then like, and then like, would would try to go clean, and then like turn back and try to reach their people. And she just started developing this huge missionary work. But she started get to get to the place where people would interview her and be like, "Hey, tell us how to do this in our city, or tell, what what do you do that's so radical?" And she'd be like, "Well, listen, I pray in tongues, and then people get healed. It's crazy. It's crazy." So you should, you know, that lip, that's just literally all we do is like, I just go around, I pray in tongues, and people get healed. That's what happens. So, you know, you could try that. You could try that. That's what we do. That's all we do. I think it's a remarkable story of humility. Some people would look at that now. Some people would look back at that and think, man, that's really immature theology and immature missiology that, like, this, this is just all that God does or, and trying to like propagate a model. I think it's humility. You see, pride says, I know what's right for you. And I have the power in me to help you do what I say. But humility says, I know the one who knows what's right for you. And I know the one who has the power to do that for you. Do what he says. And I can just tell you how it is that I experience him, get to know him, hear from him, follow him, walk with him. Good luck. <laughs> Listen to the Spirit. You see, I think Paul, Paul is hungry for Elimus' repentance and restoration. Hungry for him to encounter God. And he offers Elimus the only path to Jesus that he's aware of. It's the one that he had. Proving that his highest hope for Elimus is not pain or scorn or destruction. Paul's not just trying to like publicly shame someone and destroy their reputation. And, and totally trying to scorn him, run him into the ground, get him out of the city. I think he's motivated by love. And I think he knows from his own experience... I know for this person, because it was me one time, I know actually what the most loving thing to do for this person is. It's this rebuke. Because if it wouldn't happen to me, I wouldn't be where I am right now. And I wouldn't know Jesus the way I do right now. And so I have to deliver it. And it results in the best thing that has ever happened to Elimus in his entire life. Elimus groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And you know when Jesus comes to the life of someone? It's when they're groping about, seeking for someone to lead them by the hand. Most of us don't like to rebuke, just like Reggie said. I don't like it. I'll just be honest with you. I don't like it. I'm, I'm, I'm not very confrontational. I'm a, I'm a peacemaker. And sometimes it's... It's not real peace, it's just my own little fabrication of peace so I can like leave for the day and feel like it's okay, you know? I don't like confrontation, I don't like to rebuke, I'm not great, I'm not great at doing it. It takes a long time to get me there. I mean, somebody's got to be real jacked up. Somebody's got to be super jacked up to get me there, to that place. And some of us love to rebuke. There are some of you in the room who are like, I'm tired of this sermon. I want to rebuke somebody right now. Like, 
Like you're just you're just looking around the room. Like I just this is what I'm I'm wired by God to do that. I am wired by God to deliver a rebuke. It's like my core. It's my gifting. It's my spiritual gift. Is rebuke. I just want to deliver like maybe a little word. I was just praying this morning and wondering just a little word for each of you. Those of you like me who maybe don't like to rebuke are slow to rebuke. Maybe you even know it's you're supposed to and you're just like dreading it, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And it just takes you a long time to get there. $180,000? Am I getting paid? Who's getting paid? Who's getting paid? Me? <laughs> Those of you who don't like to rebuke, maybe you're a little bit right me, like me. I just want to tell you, like, and maybe this is a word from the Lord from you. If when you resist and you hold back and you delay and you and you and or maybe you even think it's morally wrong to do so, you should rebuke no one. And you have like a whole logic around that. You may be actually holding back from someone the greatest gift in their entire life. And, and, by doing so, by not delivering rebuke, you, you run the risk of actually standing in the position of, of Elimus and opposing what God is trying to do in the life of a person and, and, and trying to deliver that through you, through the people in that person's life to deliver it. I'm telling you, the, 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 the discipline of God is sweet. The humbling of God is a great gift. But he, he, God delights in using his people to do that. He's not going to just go do it. Well, actually, sometimes he does. <laughs> but with words and pastoral care and explanation. And the other thing I would say is those of you who are like really resistant to rebuke, you don't like to rebuke, you're actually more qualified to do it than the others. The people who are like chomping at the bit. I want to do it right now. Give me a reason. Give me a reason. And those of you who love to rebuke, God bless you. I need you. I need you in my life. We need you in this community. Those of you who love to rebuke, I would just maybe give just a word of caution that if you rebuke with love and you're motivated by love and you're motivated by restoration and wholeness and you want to walk with someone in the midst of the consequences of that rebuke, you just don't want to like deliver and run away but you're willing to walk with someone in the midst of that rebuke, God is with you. God is with you. And you don't have the power in you to do what's necessary in the life of that person. So you should be very concerned about when God is with you and when he is not. Because it's his power, it's his word that's actually going to do in that person what actually needs to be done. But if your motivation in a rebuke is pain, to bring pain to a person, to bring vengeance, to bring scorn, to slander someone, to ruin someone. God is against you. And the thing that you try to deliver to that person will not come, and it's worse for you. It's worse for you. You see, humility paves the way for this other, this other key feature of missionary life, which is the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit. It says multiple times in this passage that they were guided by the Holy Spirit. And in that same hinge verse, 
where Saul's name is changed to Paul, what does it say immediately after that? Filled with the Spirit in that rebuke. Filled with the Spirit. So you take yourself out of the center of your life and God will fill that void with true wisdom and true authority where there was false wisdom and fleeting authority. And you need the wisdom of God and I need the wisdom of God by constant filling of the Spirit because missionary life isn't prescribed. It is unpredictable. Missionary life is not prescribed. It is unpredictable. Just take this passage. In the first section... They come to three different cities in, in, in uh, two different cities in one region, and they, pro- they go to Jewish synagogues and they proclaim the gospel. Go to Jewish synagogues, proclaim the gospel. Second passage, they come across somebody, and instead of, instead of proclaim the gospel, Paul delivers a sharp rebuke and, and, uh, and has like a, some signs and wonders happen. Then they go to a third region, and you don't see direct proclamation, and you don't see direct rebuke. You actually see sitting and waiting. They go into a synagogue and they don't like proclaim right away, nor do they rebuke anything going on in that synagogue. They come in and they sit and they wait. And they wait to be invited to speak. Because these are three entire different missionary strategies. But implemented by the same missionaries, just in different places. So if somebody tells you the way to be a missionary is to go everywhere and proclaim, yeah, maybe. Or the way to be a missionary is to just call out evil and rebuke people all the time. Yeah, maybe. Or to go everywhere and just like sit, look for a person of peace, be relational, kind of like build trust and favor and see what happens. Maybe they'll invite you to speak. Yeah, maybe. But if somebody tells you that's what it means entirely, it's never true. It's never true. Somebody comes in and tries to tell you exactly how to be a missionary, and it's like one skill set, one way of doing things, one model, one formula. It's never true. Never true. It reminds me a little bit of Luke 10 when he sends the 72, and he says, go two by two to all these cities. Don't bring this, this. Jesus tells these, these disciples, go, go and announce that the kingdom of coming. Go and, go and announce that I'm on my way to these cities. And don't bring this, this, or this, or this. And when you get there, maybe look for a person of peace. And uh, sometimes you'll find one. And when you find one, just stay at their house. Kind of go real deep with them. See what happens. Sometimes you might not find one. And when you don't find one, you've got you've to deliver a rebuke. And sometimes if you deliver, sometimes the rebuke isn't enough. You've got to shake the dust off your feet and do this weird thing. And uh, then you can just go to the next city. But you might wonder, how long do you stay in each city? How long until you know if there's a person of peace or not? How long do you know if I need to... It's like 10 minutes in a city? Like, ah, there's not a person of peace here. I can tell. Shake the dust. Dust be gone. Or do you go to a place and you're like, I haven't met every single person in the city yet. I need to wait at least 25 years. In this passage, you see them go to five different cities in three different regions in the matter of 14 verses. Now, were they there for a year? Were they there for a month? Were they there for a week? We don't know. But how do they decide? How do you decide? Do you invest in one coworker for five years, or do you give it like six months and move on to something and to, to somebody else? Try to see if there's more openness in another community. Because I've heard stories of people who 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 like they were they were somewhere for two or three months, not a lot of openness. They just pivot over here, and all of a sudden there's like an explosion of like harvest and fruit. And I've heard people say, "Yeah, I was trying to I was trying to you know committed to like three or four coworkers for three years, no movement. Suddenly one conversation, it's just like my whole my whole office is Christian. It's crazy." 
And one of them will tell the other, man, you bailed too early. And the other one will tell the other, stop staying there for three years. What are you doing? You're wasting your time. They'll try to tell each other what to do. It's complicated. They, they, Paul and Barnabas do different things in different cities. They clearly implement different strategies in different places. It's movemental. They're always on the move, but how long in each place? It's a little bit contextual, complex. So missionary life doesn't mean always proclaim. It doesn't mean always rebuke. It doesn't mean always wait and slow relational evangelism. It doesn't mean solely social and political engagement. It isn't strictly the multiplication of house churches. It's all those things and more. More, 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 more. If someone tells you exactly how to be a missionary, it's never complete. Because missionary life, missionary life, the only congruent, the only through line, missionary life in its purest and most transcendent and transcultural form is to listen to the Spirit of God and do what He says. Just as the Father sent Jesus, this is what he says. He says, just as the Father sent me, so now I send you. My relationship with the Father is now somehow mirrored by your relationship with me. And several times in the Gospels, Jesus says, look, I just do what I see the Father doing. I, I just say what I hear the Father saying. And so now we just do what we see Jesus doing. We just say what we see Jesus saying, what we hear him saying. And the way that he's told us to actually see what he's doing, hear what he's saying, is he said, I'm going to send the helper to you to reveal all truth, to walk with you, to embed, embed myself in you, my presence in you, to be with you, and to convict the world of truth and righteousness, and to glorify God and his majesty. How long should I, should I stay in this place and keep doing this? I can't tell you. And look, you can ask other people because God speaks through community. Keep, keep learning, keep listening, keep asking other people, but do not replace the voice of the Spirit of God, the leadership of the Spirit of God in your life with any other leader, any other book, any other podcast. You listen to him. You listen to him. And he'll tell you in his time. And when you don't feel like he's telling you, you trust him with that. I guess silence is the best thing for me right now. You trust him. And he'll tell you, and it'll be better than whatever anybody else decides for you. In 2008, I went on this massive short-term missions trip to, to Romania. I mean, there's like 100 college students that went to Romania to this, um, and I've talked about this trip a few times, but we went to this, this, uh, this little uh, village of gypsies who'd been outcast from the city of Aradia, and they were on the outskirts of the city because they couldn't, because they were gypsies, they could not use any public facilities of any kind. E extreme, extreme racial prejudice against them, and so they had to build their own dry mud villages out in the out in the like slums. No septic systems, no utility systems, uh, 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 none of that. And we we're sending like a hundred college students. We're going to go serve this community, and you know. Ton of college students, you got a ton of projects to do. So we're we're trying and the the leaders of this trip were like, Yeah, we don't they they have the self awareness to know we don't know how to decide on behalf of the community what's gonna help them. So we're gonna consult this missions agency that's local and and defer to what they think we should actually do in the community. So the missions agency says, You need to, there's this like ten acre field that's all trash. It's just where everything gets dumped and it's right outside the village and it's causing all this kind of like disease and problems. And so if you guys could clean that field, like like remove as much trash as possible from that field, that'd be awesome. And then we need you to build like fifteen latrines 
you know, like a toilet system, a septic, some kind of septic system. And so we're like, cool, let's do that. What we didn't know is that that missions organization did not actually investigate or try to consult. the. They were, they were doing what those leaders were trying not to do, which is to assume what the community needs, bring that in, try to do that. So we go in there. We're cleaning up this field for like a day and a half. We barely, we barely get like 5% of that thing picked up. And, we re, and everybody realizes this is a total waste of time. We can't even dent this. We cannot even dent this. This is a total waste of time. So then we just focus on the, the, the latrines. If we can get these done before we leave, that'd be great. So we finish all the latrines. Guys, one year later, one year later, that that whole like trash dump or whatever is twice as big as when we left. And all those latrines got taken down. And the wood from those latrines were, was used to build other things that the community actually wanted. interesting <laughs> clean out these fields guys none of that work was meaningful a whole week like a hundred college students none of that work was meaningful because none of it was wise and none of it was endowed with power or authority at all by the spirit of god because we just trusted a missions organization to tell us what to do and clearly that missions organization i don't want to be too presumptive but clearly they were not also listening to the spirit of god of what to do with us what to do with the resources we brought on the last day of that trip there was this one guy on our trip on the last day it was like this like hugging everybody and like it was so good to meet you we were like so blessed by this like relational interchange and all this kind of stuff and this one guy went into the house of like a elderly like an 80 year old woman who he noticed through the week was cleaning shoes just cleaning shoes and he went into her house on the last day while everybody else was like doing hugs with kids and like shaking hands with parents and like doing like, well, we'll see you next time, whatever. Goes into this house and says, before we leave, could you clean my shoes? Would you be willing to clean my shoes? And I'll, you know, I'll pay you whatever you charge everybody else. And that woman said through a translator, 80-year-old woman, through a translator said, no Roma. She said Roma because it's all, they don't know. They didn't know where we were from. They just assumed anybody not gypsy is Roma, like Romanian. So she looked at him and she said, no Roma has seen value in me or wanted something from me. Who is the God you serve? You see, serving them for a week, 100 college students coming in and serving them was actually reinforcing a lifetime of inferiority. And at the same time, reinforcing that inferiority was actually keeping them from a hearing and an encounter with Jesus. But somebody coming in and identifying value, seeing value in the community, seeing beauty in the community, and coming underneath and being served by that value, the discovery of that beauty and value in the community, just cracked open the gospel just cracked open the character of God in some meaningful way in that community. I cannot remember a single manual, book, teacher, podcast that I read in years leading up to that, that trip that said something like, don't even serve them. Come in and just look for beauty and value and name it when you see it and ask to be served by it. Not a single one. Everything was like, go in, figure out how to best help, most strategic way to help, whatever that, come alongside... Not a single person was saying, just come in and look for beauty and value. Name it when you see it. 
and then, and then asked to be served by it in some meaningful way. Guys, and it, and it just cracked it open. I think if we would have been listening to the Spirit of God, that trip would have looked totally different. Totally different. 100% different. There is, not, there is not a manual for missionary life. There's not a mode. There's not a single leader, not a single book. There's not a single anything that can tell you exactly what missionary life, what your microchurch life should look like. You listen to the Spirit of God for wisdom and discernment. And encaptured in, 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 in that wisdom and discernment is real power and authority that you, you otherwise do not have access to. I'm going to have the worship team come up, and I'm going to finish with this. That evil's worst nightmare is a humble and spirit-filled missionary. And we need wisdom of the Spirit, but we also need that authority and that power of God by constant filling of the Spirit. Because missionary life is an immediate and an unrelenting battle of competing gods, competing truths, competing powers, competing principalities, competing rulers and realms and authorities. You step into missionary life and you step into a war right away, right away from step one. And the hand of Jesus, this is the good news, this is really, really good news. The hand of Jesus is actively against every evil, always. Actively against every evil always. Every power, every principality, every realm and ruler. He hasn't forgotten any evil. You cannot remind him or surprise him of any evil. He's already actively against it. His hand is already against it. Already. And Jesus is already at work. And somehow in every place, among every people. And against every evil. And he could, he could in his sovereignty... In his sovereignty and his power and his love. He could choose to work in whatever way he wishes. He could try to deal with that evil in whatever way he wishes. But this is the crazy part. He delights to work through you. Through me. Through his bride. He, want, he delights. He glories in his people. Advancing his mission, his cause, his character, his renown, his name in the world. He delights in it. So he's always inviting us to join him on those fronts. And so the wisdom and power and authority of Jesus is freely accessible and graciously given to his people. And what's the result? The result looks something like this. That when the proconsul saw what happened, he believed for he was amazed. He was amazed at the teaching of these people. I'm sure he was amazed that, that, that this guy just got blinded by some mist. It's not like that was boring. But it says he was amazed, not just at, that, what, at the blindness, but at what that attested to, which was the teaching of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of all. And, and being amazed by all of it together speaks to this, this reality of like, what power, what authority did these guys have coming into this island? Unknown, unheard. They don't operate within the power structure, authority structure of that world, and yet they step in and they're immediately received somehow with power and authority in their teaching and in these miraculous works passing through them. Guys, that power, that authority is not something that they strive for, grasp for, earn, build up. It's something that happens in the Spirit of God. That people begin to like get, like, like see power and authority 
that they cannot even understand or describe. And they're amazed by it. Amazed by it. Wisdom, power, and authority of the Spirit results in the transformation of both, both the proconsul and Elemus. Guys, there's two radical encounters in this text, not one. There's two redemptive movements in this text, not one. In the life of the proconsul and the life of Elemus. The Spirit knew what they needed and had the power to deliver it. Guys, Jesus is going to give sight to the blind. And he's going to keep doing it. And he's going to give blindness to those who think they see. And Jesus is going to continue to bring comfort to the afflicted. And you better believe he will afflict the comfortable. He's in the work of doing both things. And this morning as we come to the table. To invite Jesus to comfort our affliction at the table. And we invite Jesus to afflict our comfort at the table. As we come to the table, we wrestle with our own pride. And we ask God to empty us of all that is not him. To lead us into humility. And as we come away from the table, this morning there's going to be prayer ministry available around the room. Some people up here, some people on the sides. They're they're just available to pray with you during worship at any point in time. And you can come up to receive prayer for whatever's on your heart this morning. But if you just want to come up and, and, and receive prayer in response to this word, guys, come and ask for God to fill you with the Holy Spirit in a fresh way this morning. Listen, would you surrender your life to Jesus? The Spirit of God comes upon you as a seal of your salvation. It's not like you don't have the Spirit this morning. But if you need him to fill you in a new way, empower you in a new way, overcome you in a new way, come and ask for it this morning. Come and receive that this morning. The the people praying this morning would love to pray that over you. And whatever the Spirit of God wants to do in you this morning, let it come. Come what may this morning. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, "This, this body is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. So this morning, underground leaders, missionaries, dreamers, would you come and take of the sacraments together as a community and remember this sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, the body and blood of Jesus given for you this morning.